the birds and bees talk went for you with your kids or with your parents, but um, you know, as I was thinking back and reflecting on it to begin this series, I realized for me that was a pretty rugged experience. I didn't even get one of those embarrassing conversations. I just got a book with some pencil drawings that were really bad drawings, you know, about human anatomy, and somehow I was supposed to figure all this stuff out, and I couldn't quite figure it all out, so I snuck into my dad's library. He had books that he would give the couples who were going to get married, and I swiped those books and hid in there and read those books, just trying to make some sense out of all of this. I had no idea how all this worked, and let alone the emotional side, as well as the spiritual side of this amazing dynamic that God has created for us. And so this morning as we dive into this, one of the things that, that I know to be very, very true about sex is, number one, sex is good because God created it, and everything that God made is good. Number two, it's powerful. And number three, God's design is for it to only be experienced in the context of marriage. But we face a huge, huge challenge in our culture today. Huge challenge. Because we live in an over-sexualized culture. Let me just give you some statistics about this whole area of sexuality. They're going to come up, some of them are going to come up on the screen. 77% of evening TV shows sexual content. There's an average of five sexual moments every hour-long TV program. And on the top ten shows, um, there's an average of 6.7 of these moments, which means every eight minutes, there's some sexual content on an evening TV show. Two of the top cable network TV shows, Game, Game of Thrones and Orange is the New Black, show graphic nudity in them. PBS, which is not known for its conservative bent, did a study recently on how, sexual, how, the, um, how sex has influenced TV. And this is what they found. They found that on TV now, more body parts are exposed than ever before. They also found that on TV, there's a greater emphasis on the size of women's breasts. They also discovered that there's far greater access to sexualized images through cable, internet, and live streaming. Previously, you had to go search for this content or pay for this content. Now this content comes to you and it finds you. A new challenge is on Netflix. Netflix gives you a rating for any TV or show or movie that you're going to watch, but it doesn't tell you at all why the rating is there, so you have no idea what you're about to see. In most popular magazines, 50% of the ads use women for, as, as sexual content. 92% of the movies have sexual content. Listen to this statistic. Less than half of the interaction about sexual engagement on any TV or movie is between a husband and wife who are married. I want to challenge you to do this. Next time you sit down and watch a TV program or watch a movie, watch your favorite Netflix episode, watch how much of the interaction about sexual engagement is between a husband and a wife versus people who are not married. You'll be staggered to notice how much of that is taking place. The average American consumes four hours of TV on a daily basis, so you can imagine how that influences our way of thinking. Uh, Two-thirds of the couples applying for marriage license are living together today. How does this affect our students, our our, um, high school and college students? Well, here's some statistics for you. 75% of high school graduates have already had sex. 70% of college students say that they've had oral sex in the last month. And 10% of college females and 17% of college males admit to having three or more sexual partners in the past year. And so this just gives you a flavor of the culture that we live in. And you might think, well, we're a little insulated in Lancaster County. Well, yes and no. In Lancaster County, it's not out in front of you. 
It's all underneath the radar and it's hidden. That's what happens in the world that we live around here versus being in a more urban setting. Hormones are raging. Are raging. People are single, single longer and there is a massive cultural influences on the way we think about sexuality. The first century, how did they solve it in Jesus' day? Well, in the first century, you were married at 13 or 14. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a solution to the problem. Um, as the teenagers, their eyes just all got bug-eyed at me, you know, looking at me and choked on their coffee, you know. Um, but how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? You know, sex edge doesn't teach abstinence, it teaches prevention. And so there's a massive challenge in front of us. Massive challenge. You know, the culture kind of views sex as, as, a, <clears throat> as an appetite to be indulged, to just take in whenever you need it, and then discard it when it's no longer needed, like a worn-out pair of socks or a used toothbrush, and then you just replace it with something new. And so today what we want to do as we begin this series, we want to go back to the original creator who designed this, God himself, and examine what did he say about this issue of sexuality. And as we talk about these issues, we're going to dive into these over the next few weeks. You can see them listed on the screen. Um, next week, we're going to talk about sex and singleness. 20% of our church community is single. So those of you that are married may be thinking, ah, I don't know that I need to be here next week, but how many of you know someone who's single? Let me see your hands. That's not married. How many of you know someone? Okay, most of the room. You need to know what their struggles are. You need to know what their challenges are so you can walk into life and engage them through the challenges that they're in as well. We're also going to talk about sexual struggles. We're going to talk about same-sex attraction, homosexuality, and the sexual drug of our day, which is pornography. Um, the weekend of November 12th and 13th, we're having a special guest speaker um, who's going to be here with us all weekend, special sessions for men, for students, for parents, and he's going to speak to us on Sunday morning on this issue of pornography. Do you know pornography taps a part of the brain that's the same part of the brain when a cocaine addict, when a cocaine user takes a hit, it taps that same part of the brain and causes a powerful addictive quality in the individual's life that uses it. And you don't have to go find it. It shows up right here every day, every day. And so we're going to tackle all of these issues, and I hope you make it a priority to be here as we look at them. But this morning, what we want to do is we want to start by taking a quick look at what does God say about this? How did God design this in the very beginning? Because obviously our cultural influences has caused us to look at this in a way that's very different than the way God views it. And so in order to do that, as we tackle this subject this morning, I'm very aware that for some of you, this is going to crack open some wounds. This is going to tear some scabs off um, of some things that you've done in the past that you have buried in the past and you hope no one ever finds out, you hope your spouse never discovers this, and it's going to crack it open again. For some of you, it's going to be sin that was done against you or to you. Whether that's abuse as a child or rape as an adult. <coughs> it's going to crack those things open. For all of us, we need to face the reality that as long as we live on this earth and that the fact that God has designed us as sexual beings that there will be sin in our lives in this area. Nobody's excluded from this. Nobody. And I hope that as you sit through these messages, that you don't think about, well, I wish so-and-so would hear it. I wish so-and-so. I wish they would hear it. I wish they would not hear, pay attention to this. I hope that you're saying, God, what do you want me to pay attention to? What are you exposing in my heart 
What are you exposing in my life this morning? You know, I think about this issue of, of sexuality. There's something about it that's very, very um, fragile. Very fragile. And it's something that needs to be handled with great gentleness and care. Now, when you, in the next two months, start to take things like this out of a box and begin to hang them on a Christmas tree, um, one green, one red, you know, what do you say to your preschooler when they go near this? What do you say to them? Don't what? Don't touch, right? Don't touch. Why? Because it's fragile. It's fragile. You don't want them anywhere near this because they might break it. And if your elementary school boy or middle school boy gets near it, you say something like, get away from there, leave it alone, you know, because they aren't listening half the time, right? So you've got to get their attention, you know. Because what? They're just going to run and run into it and bump it and, and knock it down and, and maybe break this or cause it to chip. And you don't want that to happen, do you? And so sexuality is somewhat fragile, but our culture doesn't view it that way. Our culture views sexuality in a very dismissive way. You see, it's created by God as something to be enjoyed and something to be fully embraced, but something to be treated with great care. You know, there's a lot of myths about this area. I want to put some of them on the screen. One of the myths about sexuality, and we're going to talk about these over the next few weeks, is sex is about individual exploration or expression. You know, you just have to explore it. And, and as long as two people are in love, it, that's all that matters. As long as they're in love, they, that's all that matters. Another myth about it is it's all about physical pleasure. There's nothing, there's nothing emotional. It's just, just physical. Here's another one. Um, it's something you have to try to get it right. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about sex and singleness, this myth that, you know, you've got to try to decide if you're, if you're compatible before you actually commit to marriage. Here's one that's true in, even in the context of the church. It's dirty, it's private, and shouldn't be talked about in public. And so we're going to talk about some of these this week, some of these next week, as we look into what God had to say about this. But the first thing I want you to wrap your minds around that God says about sex is that sex is not just a physical act. It's all about oneness. It's all about oneness. You say, what do you mean it's all about oneness, John? Well, sex, the word sex comes from the Latin word, the Latin word sacar, which means to be cut off. You say, what do you mean to be cut off? Well, the word sex doesn't just define the, the intimacy between a man and a woman. It also defines who we are as male and female. You know, that it's the, what is your sex? You're either male or female. Um, uh, that's a little confused, and that's another topic for another day, but... Um, um, it, when God created us, he didn't make us as a complete whole unit. We're incomplete. We're incomplete. And God's design for sexual intimacy is to put inside of us this drive and this longing to connect with someone else. Because there's an incompleteness in us just being by ourselves. And so sexual energy, part of that is a longing for this wholeness to come together with another person to be one. In Genesis 1, when God created us, look at this verse. It says, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what that means is that God has created us with some reflection, some parts of him in us. Not everything, but parts of him are in us. You say, so what part of this oneness is in, of him is in us? Well, the Bible describes God as three and one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it describes them as being this perfect unity, perfect trinity. When Jesus was here, he prayed this prayer in the garden before he was crucified. He said, Father, my prayer 
is that they, he's talking about his followers, they will be one like you and I are one. You see, the Father and the Son exist in this perfect unity, this perfect sense of oneness. And God has created within us this longing for relationship, this longing to be one. But part of the way we live, the part of the way he's designed us is being not fully complete. And man realized this. God said this in Genesis 2 when he said, in verse 18, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God created man, and the story goes that he named all the animals. He realized there was none like him. There was two of this one, and 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 they were all made for each other. But there was none that was made for Adam. And so God created Eve, who was to be his companion, a helper suitable for him. Man and, man and woman, their very anatomy is different, yet they're made for oneness. Sex is not just about create, procreation, but it's about becoming one. There's another phrase that the Bible uses to describe this. In some of the older translations, when it describes a couple having sexual intimacy, it says that the man knew the woman. In Genesis 4, verse 1, the King James Version, it says, Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she bore Cain. It doesn't just mean they had a conversation. There was sexual intimacy. And what that means is that they knew one another. And so there's something about this intimacy, about being fully known and knowing the other person. And sex is about losing our independence and giving ourselves fully to another person. And in this, this oneness is initiated. You see, sex is God's appointed way of saying, I belong completely, independently, and ex completely independently and exclusively to you. But what our culture does is our culture says that sex is a little bit like a football. It's like a football. We just take a football and we throw it, you know, around like it's just a toy, right? You can throw that back. Should have hit Josiah. He had his head down there, but now he's paying attention. Um, and that's what we do. We don't, we don't treat it like something like this. I wouldn't throw this at it. That Micah, would I? My wife would kill me if I threw it. Not that I don't trust Micah, but my wife doesn't trust me, you know. Um, why? Because we need to treat this as something gentle, as something special, as something unique and fragile. And not treat it simply like a toy, like this. But our culture says it's just like this. Just throw it around like a bunch of junior hires would. And don't worry about it. But God says there's something uniquely distinct about you deeply becoming one with another person. The very act of sex makes you feel personally interwoven with another person. And that's why words of intimacy like I love you and I will never leave you are often said in those moments of passion. God's put it this way in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. He says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become what? One flesh. There's that oneness idea again. Adam and his wife were both naked, and there was absolutely no shame. So the first part of God's design for sexual intimacy is oneness. Oneness. And if you're feeling disconnected from your spouse, this is an area of your relationship to look at. And we're going to talk more about the specifics of this in marriage in two weeks when we talk about sex in marriage. You know, wives for men... Sexual intercourse is, is when they feel connected and emotionally united with you. That's the way it works for men. Men, for your wives, sexual intercourse does not make them feel emotionally connected to you. 
It's the outcome of a deep emotional connection that you build with them. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. If you want to experience the wonder and beauty of an amazing sex life with your spouse, especially for the men, you have got to work at being emotionally engaged and connected with them all throughout the day. Connecting with them throughout the day. When you get home, taking some time to focus with them and give them time and attention, especially if you're in the season of life where you have young children. Give them a high five, give them a hug, tell them you'll be with them in 10 minutes and let them know that mom comes first. Tell young couples all the time, long hugs, deep kisses, back rubs, and then walk away, guys. Nothing more. Nothing more. See, there's a sense of connecting with them all day long, not just in that moment where you think you want something and you hope you will get something. That's not God's design. God's design is for there to be this sense of oneness. He says it in second in the Song of Songs 216, My beloved is mine and I am his. And so the first part of God's design for sexual intimacy is oneness. The second part of God's design for sexual intimacy is that it's to be sacred. It's to be sacred. It's to be something set apart, something unique and distinct. And again, the problem is our culture has taken this idea and distorted it. Because when we think of erotic, passionate love, what do you think of? You think of, you know, you think of sex videos or, or pornography or some steamy forbidden fruit that's not supposed to be given any consideration to. And our culture paints it that way. But not only our culture, the church for many centuries has viewed sexual intimacy as that way. Martin Luther, one of the great church fathers, said that sexual intercourse never happened without sin. Never happened without sin. Bishop of Paris said the Holy Spirit actually leaves the room when a married couple does the act. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word sexual intimacy. But God's designed this. And God's created us for this. And in Genesis, he said it was good. And God's design is for there to be a sense of sacredness. When you think of something sacred, you think of something holy, something set apart, something distinct and unique. And what makes it distinct and unique? What makes it distinct and unique is the passion and the fire that this produces. God wrote a whole book in the Bible about this called the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. This book was often read at a Jewish wedding. And it describes sex not as something to be hidden, not as something to not be talked about as private, but something God created for a purpose to be enjoyed. Look at a couple verses on the screen from there. Song of Songs 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Verse 3. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young woman love you. And then verse 4. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. As you read through that book, you have this overwhelming sense that the Shunammite woman could not wait to be with her, with her beloved, could not wait to be with him. And Song of Solomon encouraged lovers to take delight and enjoy one another. The problem is when we think of this word erotic, what do we think of? We think of strip clubs, we think of dirty movies, we think of porn, that's what we think of. But the word eros where that word comes from, is the Greek word that the writers of Scripture used to describe this intimate passion that comes in a relationship. God's not embarrassed to talk about this subject, and I believe the Song of Songs is one of the ways he invites that to be part of this intimate relationship. So the sacredness about it is there's supposed to be a level of fire and passion and eroticism inside the context 
of the marriage relationship. Some of you are thinking, well, that would be kind of nice, but that ain't happening in my house these days, you know. I talk with couples often about the level of commitment. What's your level of commitment? Zero to ten. You know, what's your level of passion in your relationship? Zero to ten. And I want to challenge you, if you're married, to go home and ask your spouse, write it on a piece of paper, have them write it, and then show it to one another. And this might be an area where you've got to pay some attention to, because this is part of God's design for a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship. Not what the world says it should be, but God's design for that. If you need a little bit of encouragement, there's a couple of resources. I'm going to put them on the screen. The Celebration of Sex and Intimacy Ignited. Now, usually women are pulling out a piece of paper. They're writing down these books because they're going to get these books, you know, and then they're going to put them on the nightstand and hope somebody reads them who won't read them, you know. Um, but guys, you need to be the ones buying these books. Not them. You need to be the ones buying them. You need to be the ones reading them. If, you're not, if you forget or you don't want to embarrass yourself because I just told you you should write them down, you can text me this week and I'll give you the titles to them and a link on Amazon to go buy them. You know, guys, this is part of God's design for marriage. And we're going to see in a few weeks when we talk about this drug of pornography how it's robbed us of it. And it's over here in this bucket and so we feel guilty if there's this level of enjoyment and passion in marriage because it's so distorted. But it's part of God's original design. You can't read the book of Song of Songs without thinking, these two are flirting and having a party like I haven't experienced in a long time, you know? But that's the way God designed it. Because He designed it to be good. And he designed it in the confines of marriage to be something meaningful and to be something significant. And so if sex is about oneness and if sex is to be sacred and passionate, how does that happen? How does that happen in a relationship? Well, there's one thing that it requires. And I want to take a few minutes and talk about this. It requires vulnerability. It requires vulnerability. You see, sex by its very nature requires vulnerability. It requires two people to be, um, to be physically naked and potentially to be emotionally naked before another person. Um, you say, do you have to be vulnerable to have sex? No. If you just view it as being physical, you don't. But vulnerability always invites someone into intimacy. Why don't you think about that statement on the screen? vulnerability always invites someone into intimacy. It doesn't matter if you are being vulnerable with one of your kids, if you're being vulnerable with a trusted friend, if you're being vulnerable with a boss or a coworker, or if you're being vulnerable with, a, with your husband or wife. It opens the door for you to feel closely connected to that person. You can't have intimacy without being vulnerable. You see, sex is meant to be a gift that we give to each other. Not something to be demanded, not something to be expected, not something to be used to control. It's a gift to be given and received. Husbands, have you been guilty of wanting the act of sex without being vulnerable and intimate with your wives. You know, I'm convinced 
that even if you were a virgin before you were married and you've not um, been involved sexually outside of your marriage for your whole life, that in this arena of our lives, there's still a lot of sin going on. There's still a lot of sin going on. And we're going to talk about this in two weeks, about how so much of this becomes selfishly motivated and driven. Wives, how many of you would love to tell your husbands how you really felt about the way they treated you the hour before or the hour after sexual intimacy that left you feeling used and hating sex? You know, I wondered for a long time why I kept hearing women, especially women who claim to be Christ followers, just talk about hating sex. I thought, why is this gift that God has given for a husband and wife to enjoy in this relationship, why is it hated, despised, feel like they're just meeting an obligation? And I realize a lot of it is husbands, because you're taking and you're not giving. You know, guys, you need to be vulnerable outside of the bedroom when it's not about something you want. And you're willing to listen to your wife's heart. You're willing not just to listen to the issue and say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, I hear you, dear, I hear you, dear. But to pay attention to what's underneath of that. Not just the facts, but the heart and the emotion and the feeling. Because that's where you become vulnerable and that's where you feel connected and that's where intimacy takes place. And I imagine that your wives don't want to withhold sex and feel like they're controlling and manipulating, but they have no other means of trying to get you to pay attention to their heart and not just their body. In two weeks, we're going to look at two perspectives that Paul has about this issue. From 1 Corinthians 7 and from Ephesians 5. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, he says, Husbands fulfill his duty to his wife, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body. Husband does not have authority over his body. The next verse, he says, um, don't deprive each other, except by mutual consent. Um, Those verses get misused badly by Christian people in marriage. And we're going to take a look at those because they often forget these next verses from Ephesians 5 where Paul says, submit to one another out of your reverence and love for Jesus. And husbands, love your wives like Christ did and gave himself up for her. You see, when we ignore the issue of vulnerability and we just make it about taking and getting and not giving, Something is tragically lost. And we miss a huge component of God's original design in this relationship. Oneness, sacredness, passion, vulnerability. You know, the truth is there's always going to be varying levels of vulnerability in a relationship. It's always going to be easier for one person to talk about the things of their heart than it is for the other person. Same way with their sexual drive and desire for sexual intimacy. There's always going to be one that desires more of that than another. But if this is a gift that I can offer, then it doesn't matter what your level of drive is. It's a gift that you can offer to the other person. If you can offer them the gift of vulnerability, then maybe more things can be offered as well. 
The truth is, guys, we often easily forget that our wives are dying for you just to take some time to listen to their heart. The candlelight dinner is nice every once in a while, but they are dying for you to listen to their heart and be involved in their lives, no strings attached. For some of you, this idea feels really dangerous because you've tried. You've tried. You, you've tried to offer your heart like this Christmas ornament and it's been dropped. It's been kicked. It's been crushed. And you're sitting there thinking, John, that sounds nice and I'm glad that was God's original design but it ain't happening in my household. It ain't happening in my marriage. Maybe when you were most vulnerable as a child, someone took advantage of you then. And without realizing it, you built walls around your heart and you built walls around your relating pattern. And no one gets in. No one gets in. Because you don't want the risk of being wounded in that way ever again. And the reality is, the gospel changes all of this. The gospel changes all of this. Because in the gospel you discover a God who loves you. And a God who loves you unconditionally, the same way no matter what. And a God that was willing to give everything up for you. Not because you offered something back to Him. And a God who longs for you to know the healing that only He can offer. You say, John, that sounds really idealistic. I've seen God do it in the lives of people. I've watched God do it in my own life. And He wants to do it in your life as well. Is vulnerability risky? Absolutely. It's the only way to intimacy. But it's part of God's original design in relationships. The last thing that's part of God's original design in, mar- in, in intimate relationships is to view sexuality as something deeply spiritual. As something deeply spiritual. You say deeply spiritual, John. I don't really get that. Well, remember the way our culture views sexuality. They say it's like the football. You know, Josiah is looking at it. He's ready, man. He's, he's got his hands out. Here you go. You know, see? It's like a football. You just throw it. Now you can throw it back to me. You tell your mom and dad you threw a football in church. Pastor John. They won't believe you. Um, But that's the way our culture talks about it. What's the phrase that they use about sex? Casual sex. We hear that phrase all the time. It's just something to be tossed around, something to be used, something that's not very important. And the truth is, whether you're single or whether you're married, you can have multiple sexual engagements and encounters because you're trying to fill up something in your soul. This longing to be known and loved and accepted, that's part of the way God has made you. And the amazing thing that happens is in the moment of sexual intimacy, you get this overwhelming sense of being completely accepted for a moment. And then it's gone. And then it's gone. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. And we're going to look over the next two weeks at part of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. 
But the book of Corinthians is written to the people of Corinth, another very over-sexualized culture. And we're going to talk about that next week, but let me just give you a little glimpse of it. The Corinthian culture, they had temples of worship to their gods. And in these temples of worship, there were temple prostitutes. They also had this teaching called dualism, which means that your body could do something, but it wouldn't affect your mind. They were separate. The body and the mind were separate. So you could go have sex with a prostitute in the temple, but your mind could still be pure and acceptable to God. And so Paul comes on the scene and he starts explaining the gospel and how Jesus comes into your life and, and he transforms your life and you become a follower of God and you become a, one of God's children. And this is all still going on. He's like, no, 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 no. There's a problem here. There's a problem here. And so look what he writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? There's this phrase that Paul uses over and over again all throughout the New Testament. He says, When you become a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Over and over and over again. There's this, there's this spiritual dynamic of you being united with Christ. You say, John, what does that mean and how does that work? I really don't understand it all. I know that the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and He becomes a part of you when you become a follower of Jesus, but somehow you are spiritually united with Jesus. And Paul says, if you're united with Jesus, can you then be united with the prostitute? He says, no, that should never happen. It should never happen. Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know that He unites Himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? He's talking about that oneness that happens in the area of sexual intimacy, right? There's a oneness that happens. He goes back to Genesis, for it said the two will become one flesh, but who's ever united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul's, saying, Paul's not saying that sexual sin is greater than any other sin, but it has greater consequences and greater impact. And he's trying to help these new followers of Jesus who have this very distorted view of sexuality. We're going to talk more about it next week. Trying to help them understand that there's something deeply spiritual about this dynamic. When you are united with another person, there's a oneness, there's a sacredness, there's a passion, there's a vulnerability. There's something deeply spiritual about that. Someone said to me recently, they said, have you ever considered that sexual intimacy is a form of worship. I said, honestly, I have not. I have not. And look what Paul says in the next verse. He says, flee sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually doesn't sin against the other person. What does he say? They sin against what? Their own body. You see, sex is an act of uniting, an act of intimacy. It's designed to create this deep bond where our identity is joined together with another person. There's nothing casual about it. And our sexuality is fragile, and our sexuality is something that can be damaged in a way that nothing else can damage it. And Paul says, protect it and guard it. To abuse it, to make it casual, damages our identity and our relationship with our Creator. If you're married and you've had a lot of sexual encounters before you were married, while you were married, 
you've experienced abusive relationships, sexual relationships in the past, whether as a child or as an adult or a teen, you know how it affects your life. How it numbs you, paralyzes you, and wounds you. And part of my prayer for you is to recognize that there's something God longs to do in your life. Not just in your relationship with God. We talk about that all the time. But also in your relationship with one another, especially a person that you commit your life to. If you have sexual abuse or sexual sin in your past, I guarantee you, 100%, it's affecting the marriage relationship you are in right now, or it will affect the relationship you might have in the future. What God wants more than anything is for you to commit to a relationship where there's a sense of oneness, where there's a sense of sacredness, where there's passion and fire, where there's vulnerability, and there's something deeply spiritual with this person you have given your life to. You say, John, it sounds like a lot of the stuff you're talking about is related to people who are married. There's a certain component of it that is. But if you're single this morning, there's some things I want you to walk away and think about. When I talk about this sense of oneness, if you're single, if we can go to the next slide, um, you might not pursue a relationship with another person, but my challenge for you is going to be to pursue Jesus. You say, what is that? What do you mean, pursue Jesus? Well, I hope you come back next week because we're going to talk very specifically about what Paul talks about in the end of 1 Corinthians 7, about what this looks like. How about your level of passion? Be careful. Be careful. If you are not married, separated, been married before, not currently married, especially you know that sex is very powerful. It's very, very powerful. The writer Solomon says this in Song of Songs 3, verse 5. He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There's a caution there. And so don't light the fire until you're at the point you've made a public commitment of marriage to that person. How about the third? Increasing your vulnerability. You might not be in a relationship where you can talk about things of your heart, but you can practice doing this with people right now. You can practice talking about what's going on on the inside. And lastly, number four, it's deeply spiritual. I can't say to you enough, if you have pain from your past in any way in this area of sexuality, contact us. We'll connect you with a counselor. Get some help to deal with this. Because God wants you to be free from this to be able to fully pursue Him in the relationships that He blesses you and honors you with. How about if you're married? Let's look at these same four things. If you're married, a sense of oneness. Remember, sex is not just physical. And remember, there's this sense of oneness. And are you honoring that today? How about your level of passion? 
Where is it? Do you need to relight that fire? How about increased vulnerability? Are you willing to share your heart with your spouse? Are you willing to listen to their heart so that they feel heard? And lastly, deeply spiritual. Are you willing to deal with the pain in your heart and in your life? You know, God says that there's one day that we will be reunited for the followers of Jesus with Him in heaven. And um, describes it in the book of Revelation. And it calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. It kind of makes me wonder if in this life, with all the brokenness and sin and pain and wounding, that every once in a while we get this little glimpse of this deep connection and oneness and passion and vulnerability with a husband or a wife in a committed marriage, that we get a little taste, a little taste of what God wants His children to spend eternity experiencing. Would you bow your heads with me as we close this morning? As we do, I want to give you a moment just to talk to God. About what He might have stirred in your hearts this morning. For some of you, this... You might have heard something new. For some, it's a reminder. For some, it feels like I pulled a scab off an old wound. But no matter where you're at in your journey, my prayer for you today is that you would be able to say, God, I, I surrender this part of my life my sexuality, whether I'm single or married. I surrender that completely to you. And whatever that next step you prompt me to do, I'm willing to obey. God, you know each person's heart you know each person's story. You know their past. You know their present. And you know their future. And God, I know you long for us to be able to offer ourselves in these meaningful relationships. Whether we are longing for them or we're experiencing them in ways that are radically different than the picture our culture paints. God, help us to rescue and redeem this area of sexuality that has been so tainted and so destroyed by our culture. To have little glimpses and little taste of what you desire for us. God, I pray for our students.
can't imagine. The pressures they face. I never had to face them to the degree that they do. Protect them, God. Guard their hearts and their minds. The moms and the dads that they see in this room be people who are passionately devoted in love with one another and in love with you. God, for those that have lost that relationship or you've not provided it for them. God, fill that with an ache for you. Like nothing they've ever known. Help us, Lord Jesus. sing a song here in a minute.